Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Think about the case you want to present to the jury and then go make that happen. Right. So if you want to tell the the jury, hey, you know, they knew this was wrong or they'd been warned about this. Okay, I'd like to tell the jury they'd been warned not to do this. How do we do that? Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, Yvonne, how are you doing with your new garden? <laughs> I'm good. I can't. Did, did, did we explain this on the last show? What 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 you're doing as far as your gardening? No, I I think we talked about it before we started recording. But I got I got an indoor uh, hydroponic garden thing for in my kitchen to grow vegetables and stuff. Even though, are you thinking it's the summer? You could grow vegetables outside. <laughs> right, yes, you right. could. <laughs> but I was like, no, I'll get a very loud, very bright hydroponic garden and put it right where I typically work. So <laughs> it's thrown me off. I was actually so I was expecting to see like just, you know, like massive, you know, bushes or, you know, stuff. And I, I it's uh, didn't I, think, I guess I didn't think about the fact that your plants are still very, very small. They're on their way. It's been one week. It's been yeah. one week <laughs> and nothing's dead yet. So right. <laughs> if, if we ever start up putting our podcast on YouTube, I'll, I'll offer some visual updates for, for the listeners. For the gardening oh, fans. <laughs> very good. Very good. Well, uh, I want to go ahead and uh, welcome our uh, our great guest this week. Uh, we are uh, pleased to have Tyler S. Thompson uh, as our guest this week. Tyler is a uh, partner at Dolt Thompson Shepherd and Conway PSC in Louisville, Kentucky. And you can look him up at kytrial.com. Tyler, how are you doing? Doing, doing well, thank you. We were uh, glad to hear that you were, well, I mean, not glad for your, for you, I, I assume, but uh, you were supposed to be on trial this week, but uh, it looks like you got continued. And so uh, you've got a little bit of time to talk to us while you're on a short break. Yes. Yes. We had a, we had a trial starting in Wilmington, North Carolina, a med mal trial. And the, unfortunately COVID has kicked up there and um, the trial was continued until 2023. So, oh my goodness. Yeah. Hey, that, that's not a short continuance. I mean, that is, uh, they've really put wow. that thing back. Yeah. That's oh. how backed up the courts are right now with some of these COVID issues and, uh, and the backlog of criminal trials that are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's definitely hard to get things to, to trial right now, but, uh, I know everybody's doing the best they can to push them. Um, well, Tyler, let me tell everybody a little bit about you more than what I've already told uh, uh, told them about you. Uh, but Tyler is a graduate of Berea College uh, in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, I think. And uh, Berea, Kentucky. Berea, Kentucky. Okay, I messed that up. Um, and uh, and then went to the University of Louisville uh, Brandeis School of Law. Uh, and uh, has been practicing law for a number of years. Had just some fantastic results. Uh, great trials. Uh, not, not only is Tyler an AV rated lawyer, uh, he is a member of the inner circle of advocates, uh, has been named a number of times as a top 50, uh, lawyer in Kentucky by super lawyers, a top 10, uh, lawyer in Kentucky by super lawyers. And then in 2021 this year, he's been named the number one lawyer in Kentucky. Um, so that's a, a great honor and we're, uh, we're, we're glad to have, uh, have Tyler on. He's also uh, a, a friend of uh, of our firms in the shows. Uh, he won the Pete Perlman Outstanding Trial Lawyer Award. Uh, Pete's a fantastic lawyer from up in up in Kentucky, and um, 
Tyler has uh, has three daughters and um, is on the board of the uh, uh, um, uh, Kentucky Association of Justice, as well as I thought this was cool. The board of the uh, American Museum of Fly Fishing. So (laughs) I thought I thought that was pretty, pretty cool. So you must be an avid fly fisher. I am. That's one of those boards that you really don't mind serving on. You find right. a lot of good places to fish. So. That's right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on, Tyler. We uh, we really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. This case that we're talking about, um, you know, as I was reading it, it's just one of those things that uh, as a parent, uh, you just it, it scares you to death and uh, and you never want to hear about. But uh, the name of the case is uh, Lori Roan on behalf of Shannon Houchin versus uh, Republic Services of Kentucky doing business business as uh, Monarch Environmental uh, Garbage Trucks and Jackie Jones. Uh, This case was tried in Warren Circuit Court that's in Warren County, Kentucky uh, back in December of 2002 uh, and resulted in a total verdict on behalf of Shannon of $27,335,667.87. And Shannon um, was a 17-year-old senior in high school, um, just uh, by all accounts from her friends and teachers, just a tremendous young lady, uh, very active, loved pets, uh, aspired to be a daycare owner, loved children, uh, just pretty much uh, everyone uh, loved her. She worked a part-time job at McDonald's uh, in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And um, on November 23rd, so Thanksgiving uh, morning, she had spent the night at a friend's house after having dinner with some of her uh, uh, co-employees, like a sort of Thanksgiving, early Thanksgiving dinner. Um, she left her friend's house and was going to McDonald's. She was going to start working the 9 a.m. shift. Uh, she left an hour early and was going to be about a half an hour early. So she went. We, we know she wasn't in a hurry. Uh, she was driving on a two lane road. And I do have the name of the road written down here somewhere. Um, but driving on a two lane road, uh, crested a hill and a garbage truck was uh, parked facing the wrong direction in her lane of travel. Uh, she tried to steer to the left. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, at least th- this was a highly disputed point, but uh, from the plaintiff's perspective, uh, there was a um, one of the garbage men, the, uh, I think he's called the tipper, somebody who works the controls uh, that, that compacts the garbage, was standing in to the left of the uh, garbage truck, so caused her to steer back to try and avoid him and end up uh, um, sliding sideways into the truck. Uh, in her 1987 Honda Prelude. And uh, from what I understand, the injuries didn't look that bad initially, except that her head injury was catastrophic. And she suffered one of the worst brain injuries that um, that uh, that we've seen. Um, and I, I, we're, we're going to talk about this during the show, the amount of uh, ways this affected her uh, not being able to control her eyes, being incontinent, um, having dementia, um, having this, um, uh, uh, I think it's called hyperphagia, where she doesn't realize that she's just eaten and so eats again. So she went from being a very petite uh, young woman uh, and gained about 60 pounds within a few weeks 
after coming out of 57 days of coma. Um, so just a catastrophic brain injury. Um, and, um, and surprisingly to me, um, I guess, you know, is how hard, uh, how hard the garbage uh, truck company fought this case. And even though they're sitting facing the wrong way on the wrong side of the road, um, basically just was unwilling to take responsibility uh, for doing that, even though, as you pointed out uh, over and over in your opening and closing, that uh, that their own policies and procedures and their own manager had told them time and time again, don't park on the wrong side of the road. And that's exactly what they had done. Yes. <clears throat> part, yes. Part, of the, uh, part of the defense of the case was really had to do with Cons, uh, conspicuity and, yeah. and how visible was the truck? At what point was it visible? How much distance did she have to stop at what speed? And so, uh, you know, a day or two after the accident, they had a accident reconstructionist from Nashville out at the scene, you know, coming up with a defense. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, they argued that um, Shannon was traveling too fast for the conditions of the road. Um, interestingly, the road wasn't marked. It's a country, you know, a little two lane country road. Uh, it's, it's not particularly wide. And the, the defense was, is that even though it's not marked by statute in Kentucky, it's a 55 mile an hour speed limit, but they said, well, she shouldn't have been traveling that speed. And there was a difference. I think our expert had her going about 46 miles an hour when she came over the hill based upon uh, you know, the crush um, uh, analysis of the vehicle and the yaw marks and where they were, their expert had her going 55 miles an hour. So neither one had her going over the speed limit. But right. um, but their their argument was really fairly simple. And that is you could see the top of the truck from 275 feet and going, you know, uh, 40 or 45 uh, miles an hour or 50 even. A reasonable speed she should have been able to stop about 70 feet before the truck um of course that you know that doesn't take into account an enormous number of factors that she would have had to deal with that morning um uh, that our experts uh, talked about right right yeah you know it's interesting uh, it made me think i just had a case that was actually set to go to trial in a couple of months uh, where a um, a cotton planter, a tractor and a cotton planter were driving on the wrong side of the road. Uh, and uh, they claimed that he was sitting, that the, the tractor was sitting there uh, stationary. We claimed he was in the middle of a turn and swinging out into our client's lane. Anyways, my client it clipped our client and ended up severing his arm. Um, and so we got into a big, uh, th that was a big part of the case was uh, conspicuity, perception reaction, which you went into a lot in this case, um, you know, breaking distances and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so I, I, you know, one of the things that I thought was very interesting is even at 275 feet, and I know, I, I think the evidence, if I, even the defense was saying that once she crested the hill, it was somewhere more around 150 feet. Um, but, um, you know, that, that sounds like a lot, but when you're going 45, 50 miles an hour, I mean, you travel, I think you pointed out at 45 miles an hour, you're going 70 feet a second. So you're essentially have two seconds if it's 150 feet. Uh, so it happens very quickly. And, and, you know, when you get into this idea of how long does it take somebody to perceive and then react to that? And then, you know, if they hit their brakes, then you got 
the breaking time as well that would be added into that. Right. Uh, you know, we hired an expert um, out of Iowa who runs the world's largest computer simulation machine that Ford Motor Company, GM, all these companies use. Um, we've remained friends. He's, he's now active in this, uh, you know, uh, driverless vehicle uh uh, trials and studies they're doing. But anyway, he, he came in and testified in this case. And one of the things he brought up that that you know I'd really never thought about until he, he brought it up was uh, the rule of expectancy. And he says, you know, if, if you come up to a red light, uh, that's and it turns green or it's green turning red, you expect that you, you're attuned to it, you react much quicker. There's no indecision. And then if you... Um, have a situation where, you know, a truck is facing you on the wrong side of the road. All these thoughts start going through. What's it doing? Is it moving? Uh, can I go right? Can I go left? And he said in the computer simulations that they, that they used to do, they would they would do these trials where they would have a, uh, you know, like something jump out in the road to see how people would react on computer simulation. Right. And they called it the wagging foot of indecision. And he said, you, you could see the foot of the person go to break back to gas, to break back to gas, just kind of hovering back and forth, trying to decide what to do. So they even came up with a name for it, you know, the wagging foot of indecision. So, um, you know, my argument, you know, in this case was, well, you know, generally they'll agree upon one and a half seconds perception reaction time. She reacted very quickly. You know, uh, they tried to argue that because she had been on some ADHD medicine that she was inattentive and wasn't paying attention, but she actually reacted and moved over to the left in about 0.7 seconds. So the real issue was, well, why didn't she break? Why did she, you know, uh, go around the truck? And uh, our argument was, well, she had so many variables and factors to try to consider that, you know, she was over in the left lane. She was going to go around the truck. And then what, what I believe clearly happened is the, the tipper who's on the back of the truck then had to walk out since they're parked, you know, uh, in her lane of traffic. And normally they're supposed to be over on the other side of the road. So they have all the machinery and the handles on that side of the truck. So they're on the right side of the road. The handles are on the right side of the truck. He's standing off the road. He's not in any danger. When they pull across and park on the opposite lane on a two lane road, then for him to operate the levers, he has to walk out into the other lane of traffic which is what I think happened. He was either walked out or he was standing there because he testified uh, when I looked up, she was already into the yaw. And of course the truck's real loud. So I don't think he heard her. Right. And she's over there. She sees him. He's not looking. She gets in that lane and either walks out or, or is standing there. And she cut the wheel back to the, uh, to her right, probably going to try to go in front of the truck to the right, but unfortunately slid into the truck sideways. And, and one of the difficult things for you was that your client couldn't remember the incident at all, right? Right, right. Yeah, she 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 unfortunately was in a coma for 48 days, I believe, uh, or 52 days, and um, had no memory of the accident whatsoever and, uh, and really had no short-term memory, you know, uh, she did not testify at trial. Um, you know, we, I made a conscious decision not to bring her into courtroom. She did not even sit through the trial. Her mother was her guardian, and uh, and 
that worked out well. It was a great family, unbelievable. That mother, interestingly enough, the mother was an EMS driver. And I can't remember if she was off that day or it had switched with somebody for some reason and was not working, or she would have been the one to go to her daughter's wreck. Wow. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, one of the things that it really stuck out to me in reading your opening about the the law of expectancy, because I had not really heard that either in terms of reaction time. And it made me it made perfect sense to me. Um, you know, like if you think about when you're um, when you're driving and occasionally you'll see when like a. Uh, um, an 18 wheeler um, tractor is like towing another one and it's facing backwards. Like it, it's facing, it's facing you yeah. and how there's like a, there's just a second that that looks so weird because you know, it looks like something's in your lane of traffic coming towards you. Um, and so just from a common sense pers- perspective, I could absolutely see coming over a hill and maybe you're expecting taillights or, or the rear of a vehicle, but to see a vehicle facing you, how that would absolutely play a part in just, you know, fractions of, of a second, which in that sort of at that speed make a difference why you, you know, why you'd have that. I mean, I have personal experience with that wagging foot of indecision. So I I completely get that. Um, But I thought it was very effective the way you explained that to the jury and, and, and led with that fairly early on, because, you know, that was one of the things I think reading the defense and as Steve pointed out, the way it was defended, I think it was it was very frustrating to think about how much defending you had to do of Shannon's reaction time because somebody else was in her lane of travel facing the wrong way. I mean, it, right. it's just hard to stomach. Yeah. And then, you know, we, we went out and canvassed course the scene and we had a an accident reconstruction come in and you know get all the gps coordinates they do a total station and map out every aspect of it and there were a number of other variables you know there were mailboxes on the side of the road there were trees there was a kind of a berm or with a large ditch uh you know that sort of dictated okay i can't go right i'm going to go over to the left and just go around this truck um and um and then we had to find witnesses to kind of, you know, explain all that. Um, uh, you know, on, one of the things that I like to do is, that, you know, if I'm teaching seminars to lawyers, I'll say, you know, think about the case you want to present to the jury and then go make that happen. Right. You know? So if you want to tell the, tell the jury, hey, you know, they knew this was wrong or they'd been warned about this. OK, I'd like to tell the jury they'd been warned not to do this. Uh, how do we do that? So we went. We actually, you know, drove out in the country and parked and just walked to every house kind of down that road near that area and said, you know, uh, we represent this little girl that was devastatingly injured in this wreck. And, you know, have you all had any experience of coming over here? Well, we we found two or three people that had Um, uh, one lady that lived right there said she had gone out um, on three different occasions, had called them and told them to quit parking on the other side of the road. The last time was about two weeks before the wreck. Uh, it had been like a year earlier, six months earlier. And both times they assured her that they would talk to them, make sure they didn't do it anymore. And then um, I think two weeks before the wreck, she said she was out there and the car had to slam on its brakes and it kind of swerved over toward her yard. And, you know, she said, this is so unsafe. And she called them again. 
And then we had two witnesses who uh, had driven that road every morning and to go to work and had had incidences. One who said she slammed on her brakes and stopped about five feet short and she was shaking. She was so scared that she almost hit the truck. Another one said, I would have hit the truck, but I went around it to the left. I don't think I could have stopped in time. Uh, both of whom called them and said, you all need to quit doing this. So uh, my great frustration in the case is that the judge, who was a, who was a very fine judge, but he did not give us a punitive damage instruction, which I, you know really was frustrated with that. But it gave us a great argument on appeal uh, when they you know filed their appeal. We cross appealed on the punitive damage. So guys, we're going to come back and get twice as much. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them. They'll enlarge them. They'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we're on a first name basis (laughs) you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. It seemed to me with the, the amount of evidence that you had of people who had called in and complained about it, that that would be a pretty good punitive damages case. So the, the judge just didn't go your way on that? Yeah, punitives in Kentucky can be a little tough to 
to get. Um, but he, you know, he said that, um, you know, with an employer, you got to show they ratified it or, or condoned it. Um, and, you know, we actually had some of that, I thought, uh, with some of the proof. We, we did have another witness who about, I don't know, a year earlier, he was actually the mayor of a little small town right. uh, outside of, of this little town of Bowling Green. And he said uh, he came around a curve. At this garbage truck was parked in the middle of the road. He, you know, he blew the horn. And um, he said the guy made an obscene gesture at him as he went by. So he called the when he got to work, he was so upset. He called and said, look, you know, I, I, I blew my horn to tell him this was not safe. And, you know, the guy, you know, flips me off basically. And so he says, you know, I wasn't happy about that. And he said, I, I called and spoke to the supervisor. And he said, the guy just wouldn't listen. He, you know, he was kind of uh, a little bit obnoxious about it and said, you know, well, buddy, they, they can't pick up garbage moving. They got to stop. And he said, well, I know they have to stop. They don't have to stop in the middle of the road around a curb. And he said, well, uh, you know, the, uh, the law says they can stop where they want. He said, well, OK, I hear you, buddy. But let me tell you what I'm going to do. When you all have a wreck or, and cause somebody to be injured or killed because of what you're doing, I'm going to call their lawyer and make sure they know that I had this conversation with you. So I get this phone call from this guy. <laughs> he, he tells me the story and says, you know, uh, I told him I was going to do it. I want you to know I told him a year ago to quit parking, you know, in dangerous places. So I thought we had some pretty good, uh, pretty good evidence of punitives. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was great evidence and, and extremely effective. And 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 you made the the I mean, the theme you were able to put on because because they wanted to blame Shannon so much for what happened. And the theme that you were able to build out of that is, you know, this company, um, Republic Services, has had two, three years to know about this and about parking on the side, wrong side of the road. And, you know, Shannon had three to four seconds. So if we're comparing, you know, who had more time to take action and do something the right way, you know, it's, it's obviously Republic services, uh, which I thought was just uh, really effective. But um, I wanted to go back to one second about you finding these witnesses because it's just such an important point for, you know, people who want to work up cases and try them is to just get out there and meet with witnesses and spend some time out there at the scene. Uh, um, one thing I'm wondering is how how long after the incident did you have people out there, you know, talking to to locals and witnesses? You know, I, I can't remember exactly when uh, we got that information, you know, Shannon, we actually got the case pretty quickly. Um, I mean, I, I think uh, within a few weeks, uh, they had retained a lawyer and um, and it was a lawyer in Bowling Green who then called me and said, hey, you know, I, uh, these are friends, uh, it's a family and I'm trying to get them a lawyer. And, you know, would you do this? And so so I got in early, which is unusual. A lot of times you know, we do a lot of medical negligence work and most people think they're going to get better. And, you know, it, it, right. sometimes six months or a year goes by before they call a lawyer. This was relatively quickly, within a week or two, because, um, uh, you know, they had this family friend who was an attorney. So I think we got out there fairly quickly. I mean, it was within uh, probably 30 days that we were out there talking to people, trying to see what they saw, what they remembered. Uh, yeah, well, I I noticed that you try. It looks like you tried the case just about two years after the collision. Yes, 
So we, we pushed it hard, you know. Yeah. Most people who are lawyers would have a hard time understanding how long it takes to get these cases to trial, especially when you've got that many witnesses. Uh, um, uh, you know, we had a, a because of the circumstances of the case and, and what our focus groups showed us, we, we ended up actually calling a lot of witnesses because we felt like we needed to. But it's not unusual to take three, four or five years for a case to get to trial. Oh, yeah. We we actually had this one set even earlier. I had it set at about 14 months and it got continued. And then um, we I mean, I, I, I really pushed it hard. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's very tough to do and and really amazing and important, especially in a case like this, where you do have somebody who's so impaired that 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 is that is money that they can use towards the things that they need. And the longer they go without it, you know, the more that that's, that's hurting them. But I, I, I kind of couldn't believe my eyes when I saw two years from the incident, not from being hired, not from right. filing from the incident to trial is pretty amazing. Yeah. 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 We, Sorry, the, you mentioned focus groups and you said that one of the reasons why you called as many witnesses you did is because of the focus groups. What were you learning in the focus groups as far as was this more to sort of uh, protect Shannon's actions and, and show that she had done you know everything she could and she wasn't at fault um, or, what, or was it something else? Well, we did three focus groups in the case, uh, sort of mock trials, uh, really. And. Uh, it was kind of fascinating. The first one, we just went down and we presented the facts uh, sort of in a mock trial format. It seemed like we had about 20 jurors uh, or, you know, or people, mock jurors, uh, sit in on the case. <clears throat> and the jury came back. Um, there were three or four of them that found her 100 percent at fault. And the ones that didn't find her 100 percent at fault found her 50 percent at fault. Uh, and there were three or four that said the trucking company was 100 percent at fault. But, you know, the vast majority had her um, at 50 percent at fault, which I was stunned with. And what we learned was that she's a teenage drivers and, you know, people come into these trials with their own script and, you know, their own life experiences and people's life experiences that teenage drivers are poor drivers. Mm -hmm. So they immediately think, oh, she must have done something wrong because that's the script. And in this case, they started uh, without presenting any evidence of it whatsoever. They said stuff like, well, she was probably late for work. I bet she was hurrying, you know, um, uh, you know, she, she probably stayed up too late and was tired. You know how teenagers are. Uh, I bet her car was poorly maintained. Kids don't take care of their car. Um, uh, you know, they, uh, they had a number of, there were like five or six things they brought up, uh, about teenage drivers. Um, uh, you know, she's probably fooling with the radio. You know how kids listen to the radio and don't pay attention. It, it was a little bit stunning, but that was the script they had. And it was sort of confirmation bias. Now let's, let's find a reason to sort of mm -hmm. do what we believe. So the way we got around that is we, we, went and talked to all of these people and we brought in all of these witnesses. So like her boss at work, uh, you know, the accident happened at eight 15. She was supposed to be at work at nine from the distance of where the accident happened to where she lived. You know, the boss came in and said, no, you know, she was going to be 15 or 20 minutes early to work. She had no reason to be hurrying. Um, the mother of the teenager she spent the night with came in and said, you know what? 
Uh, we watched a movie and they were in bed by 11 o'clock. Nobody stayed up late. Uh, you know, there wasn't anything like that going. The father came in and said, I maintain the vehicle. And, um, and he worked, you know, in a, in a, in a plant and uh, was a very good mechanic. And he said, no, you know, I made sure because as parents, we worry about that. Her brakes were perfect. Uh, there was air in the tires, you know, no me mechanical maintenance issues. Um, uh, you know, there were three or four others. Uh, you know, we, we brought in uh, somebody said, I bet you wasn't wearing a seatbelt. So we, we brought in the trooper to right. say, no, I actually cut the seatbelt off of her. Um, uh, the tow truck driver said, you know, I, I found the vehicle in fourth gear. It wasn't in fifth gear. And um, uh, yeah, I remember the brakes worked good when I was uh, moving the car, you know, just various things like that to sort of uh, combat that natural tendency that people have to blame teenagers if they're mm -hmm. in a rain. Yeah. Yeah. You could really tell from your uh, your opening that you took those uh, those points to heart because you kind of right at the beginning, you know, pointed out that, you know, she's not she wasn't in a hurry. She wasn't speeding. She's wearing her seatbelt. She's a good student. She was, you know, the, a responsible teenager, you know, wasn't the person going out and getting in trouble. I mean, just kind of hit all those points right at the very beginning. And then got into the story about this truck on the, you know, sitting on the wrong side of the road. Um, so I thought I, I thought it was very effective, sort of taking away all those things that you you could see that the defense was going to be bringing up and, and trying to make a point mm -hmm. of. Yeah. And, and when we focused it the second time, you know, bringing forth all these things that, uh, you know, we really didn't think would be uh, would be an issue. Uh, they put 100 percent of liability uh, on the on the garbage truck company. And then the last one was on damages. We wanted to focus damages and sort of get an idea about that. But that, that was the most interesting aspect of the case to me, this this tendency to look for a reason to blame the teenager mm -hmm. right. in a situation where it's pretty clear she she hadn't done anything wrong. And then um, and then sort of how to handle that, which which you're right. We 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 thought, okay. Let's get that out there in the front. You know, there's no drugs or alcohol involved. Uh, let's let's make sure we set the stage so that yeah. that we sort of uh, you know, obviate that. Yeah. Well, Go ahead. Well, I just was going to say that that that's it's so important and something that I feel like sometimes we learn the hard way in trials, or sometimes you hopefully just learn it by from from a lawyer who's more experienced than you because i think especially when you're starting out even if you're thinking about focus grouping you're thinking about focus grouping the problems in your case or the weak points of your case or the defenses that you've sort of identified based on like the facts and the documents you have and you have to keep in mind that there's also all these conceptions that that have that at least from sort of a you know the lawyer brain um, sort of black and white point of view aren't aren't implicated in your case, but it's but because of the way jurors can think are implicated in your case. Um, but, you know, luckily you spent the time to do that and really took away all the things that somebody might be thinking, you know, that because she had gotten together with friends the night before was, you know, could there be, um, could they have stayed up late or had al alcohol or drugs? Just all those things that I found as you were addressing them in, um, in your opening, those were questions I would have had if I was on that jury, you know? Um, so I, I, as Steve pointed out, that was just very, that was very effective to sort of knock that out in the beginning. 
One thing I wanted to ask you uh, in looking at the the judgment, I'm not sure this is the same way that the verdict form would have looked, but um, it looks like the jury had to get over a number of issues that that you know whether or not Shannon was at fault. So, it, what what is the uh, what's the law in Kentucky on comparative or contributory? We have pure, so so they could find her, you know. 100% of fault or 5% of fault or, or 1% of fault, you know, that that's the, um, and, and it's funny because we got into this sort of semantic argument is, you know, for me at trial, I always like to look at the jury instructions early on in the case and say, okay, what jury instructions is this jury going to hear? Because that's really what the case is about. Yeah. And in this case, one of the jury instructions under Kentucky's motor vehicle statute is she had a duty to keep her car under reasonable control. And that was a big part of the defense is because uh, everybody kind of, you know, agreed that when she when when she was yawing, her car was out of control. So, you know, they came up with a sort of simplistic argument that, well, uh, she has a duty to keep her car under control and. Uh, as she was yawing, sliding into this truck, her car wasn't under control, so she violated her duty. And, you know, thankfully, the jury saw past that. Right. Mm-hmm. Everybody loses control of their car when they wreck. It's, you know, it, right. whose fault was it? Um, but I think that's such an important point, too, that especially the young lawyers, and I, I've said it a number of times, uh, is that when you're looking to take a deposition or or uh, want to get admissions is go back and read the jury instructions um, because that's what you're going to have to prove to the jury in the at the end of the day. So make your questions, make what you're proving fit those jury instructions. And then once you get that, you know, get those admissions in or get those you know questions in, you can say, you see, this is the jury instruction. Here's where they said it. Um, so it's it's so important to, to always be reading the jury instructions because that's that should be the framework for your case. Um, but um, anyways, the, I, I wanted to uh, ask you another question that you mentioned earlier, and we talked a lot about on the um, on the show uh, is you decided not to bring your client to uh, testify in you didn't didn't have her in the courtroom. Did you bring her at all? Did the jury ever get to meet her? You know, he the defense lawyer insisted we bring her um, for opening. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry for voir dire. So okay. when we picked the jury, uh, I did. You know, Shani's just the sweetest little girl, but but she doesn't understand everything that was going on, especially back then. So uh, we just walked to the back of the courtroom, opened the doors up. I, I brought her out. She stood in the back of the courtroom. The jurors, uh, potential jurors, uh, you know, the panel stood up and they, they all sort of looked at our way. And we stood there for about 10 seconds and then left. And that was the only time they ever saw Shannon. Wow. Which is a, another good good point or an interesting point about the case that, that I, I talk to lawyers about a lot of time and that we have certain rules that we tend to follow or guidelines. But you know, especially when practicing law, uh, every case is different. And, you know, and what you might do 99% of the time, there's always exceptions to that in cases where you wouldn't. And uh, this was one of those cases. My client had a twin sister and right. uh, my law partner, uh, you know, we, we had a so probably the only disagreement we ever had. And he was my senior partner. So I, it was a little tough, but we, 
he wanted me to put the twin sister on the stand and then put her on the stand so the jury could see the difference. And the medical proof, and, you know, and, but he had not been to anything, uh, any of the depots or things. The medical proof had come in so well, I just didn't feel like I needed to do that. In fact, I thought it would probably hurt the case. And her sister, who's who's uh, also wonderful, but uh, was going through a rough time back then. Their, uh, th- their house had burned down. Uh, she was... Uh, I think she was depressed and especially depressed over what had happened to Shannon. Um, um, and then, you know, uh, you know, being 16, 17 years old, it's a tough time anyway. So I just didn't think it was going to be helpful at all. And so, uh, so I wouldn't do it and I didn't do it, but, uh, uh you know, most times you would want to do that. You want to put the twin up and say, Oh, look here. And here's, you know, mm-hmm. here's the difference. But, uh, uh, because the proof had come in so well, I, I did not call her or the twin. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world. But if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this. But now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. So the way that you ended up uh, proving up basically what had happened to, to Shannon then was through medical testimony and then uh, what we would call sort of before and after witnesses, friends and family that could talk about what she used to be like and things like that. Yeah. And I didn't call many before witnesses. Her injury was so devastating that, um, you know, sometimes the imagination is more powerful, you know, and when you talk about the issues that that she had, um, I just didn't feel like I needed to uh, gild that lily, so to speak, or or, right. or, or make it over. You know the, uh, the you know the other way proving it up. You know they had their expert witnesses, we had our expert witnesses. But one thing that was kind of interesting aspect of the case. <clears throat> 
they, two days after this wreck, had an expert come out and examine the scene. And, you know, after all the testimony about not being there, not, you know, uh, you shouldn't park on the wrong side of the road from his supervisors and, uh, you know, waste management manuals uh, on, on trucking manuals. This expert they hired came in and said uh, there was nothing wrong with parking on the wrong side of the road. Uh, it was perfectly safe to do that. And, uh, uh, you know, she was at fault for not being able to stop in time and should, you know, had plenty of room to stop. Uh, what was interesting is in looking at these pictures, I had taken the deposition of Mr. Goodnight, who was this tipper on the back of the truck. So in these photos, I could see them in some of the photos, uh, the tipper and the driver, and they had taken them out there so that they could position the truck exactly as it was for this, you know, accident reconstructionist expert they've hired out of Nashville to, to uh, be able to, show exactly where the truck was and get his measurements. And as he's photographing the truck, I can see Mr. Goodnight, who I recognize from taking his deposition, standing, uh, you know, about 150 feet down the road at the top of the hill. So I didn't get these photos till later after I'd already deposed him, uh, but I kind of had an idea of what was going on. So when, uh, when we put him on the stand, I, I pulled these pictures out and I said, now, uh, you know, Mr. Goodnight, you know, uh, you know, we've been provided these pictures and I noticed you're in some. And do you recall going out to the scene the day after this accident uh, um, with, you know, this expert who's uh, going to testify later on? And, and he said, yeah, you know, and I said, and I'm assuming they took you out there so you can show them exactly where the truck was parked. And he said, yes. And what you all. I said, I noticed in this picture uh, that you are about 150 feet down the road at the top of the hill. Uh, did Mr. Graham ask you to go stand down there to warn traffic coming over the hill that there was a truck parked here? And he goes, yeah, that's what he did. <laughs> so it was just kind of humorous because, you know, his, his testimony that, oh, it's perfectly safe. It's like, yeah, but when you got out there, you sent this guy to stand at the top of the hill to warn traffic, you know. It very much undercut his credibility, I thought. And oh, man. Those things we didn't know we kind of got lucky with. You know? Yeah. It's, it's funny that you say that because in this case that I was telling you about that we just recently resolved uh, with the tractor, they took the tractor out and with the cotton planter and they put it in the middle of the road. And, um, and, you know, to show where it had been and get some photos. And as we did the same thing, we looked in the back and we saw that they had blocked off traffic by with police officers. And I said, so when you took that, you know, tractor out there and put it in the same spot, you blocked off the road from traffic coming. And, and I was like, well, why would you do that? You know, and they're like, well, because it's safer. And I was like, well, you're right. It is safer, isn't it? Um, so it's, uh, it, it, you know, uh, things like that are just uh, are just so good. So. Um, I was curious how something played out at trial. This kind of this goes back a little bit, but um, there was something that you had mentioned in your opening. And I was like, well, surely this is one of those things that that, you know, the defense leading up to trial will be this. But then they won't really go too hard on this in front of a jury, which was, um, you know, Shannon had um a few years before the crash had had some had had some difficulties and and had had mentioned committing suicide. And so she had gotten she had gotten treatment for that um, and was doing very well leading up to the accident. 
And I sort of thought when you had mentioned that in your opening, um, I was sort of like, yeah, there's no way they're going to go too hard on that going in on what at that point would have been a 14 year old, um, you know, just kind of struggling with feelings of confidence and, and, and whatever. And it, but it, it looked like based on the closing that, and the and the defense opening that they at least sort of went there um, and sort of made it try to sa- sound like um, your clients had had hidden that information from them. Um, and that that was sort of I, I couldn't I wasn't really sure if they were trying to connect that to what they were saying were issues with attention. Um, so I'm just wondering how you can if you can speak to how that actually played out at trial and how, um, whether it was effective at all or whether it was more of a gift for you. Yeah. I I think that they, they way overplayed that and they hired a neuropsychiatrist to come in and say, because when she was 14, um, uh, you know, she had gotten some counseling uh, along with her sister and mother, you know, they were going through teenage things and, and, you know, mom's a great mom. This, oh my God, if any woman ever deserved to be mom of the millennium, it would be this mother. She was, she was just so unbelievable. She quit her job. She moved to Louisville with her child while she was in a coma all through her months of rehab at various institutions. Just unbelievable. But when they asked her about this, she didn't tell them about it. And, and, and they said she, you know, she had any prior Mental health. She said no, because she had been told that all that was confidential. That uh, you know, and she said, "I did not want to label her as being, you know, the kid that had some type of behavioral problem or mental problem." And so I was told that that was confidential. That that you know, when when I first took her, I was told that. And I thought, okay, mm-hmm. right, we'll do this. So when they asked her about her deposition under oath, she didn't tell them about it. So they kind of went at it two ways that um, uh, one, oh, mom has been dishonest. So this must be a big deal. She didn't want you to find out about it. It must be important. And two, they hired this guy to say because she was on ADHD medicine, um, you know, from when she was 14, that maybe she was attentive uh, two years later when she was 16, which was such a stretch. Uh, you know, it was, it was pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And I thought mother handled it, you know, wonderfully. I mean, we went over it and, and we were just real honest with the jury about it. She said, look, I, you know, I was told this would be confidential and, and it didn't have to come up. I didn't want her to be labeled. I'm, I'm upset that she found out about it now. And, yeah. Um, so my argument was, hell, she did being a great mom. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which she was. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it is a shame. It's a shame that you even really had to speak about it because it does kind of just sort of reading as much as you reading from the transcript, at least as much as you had to go into it and not knowing what else came out at trial. I do think a lot of jurors could relate. I could certainly relate to that just sort of seeming like a private thing. Um, that you shouldn't have to talk about it in deposition, especially when it had nothing to do with what happened. Um, But you also, I mean, you did something that was very effective and I'm I'm wondering if you felt, um, I'm wondering how you made this decision and if it was a tough one for you to do, because one of the points that you made was talking about how, okay, at this, in this earlier treatment when she was much younger and she, she had mentioned, um, 
committing suicide because she felt like she was a burden on her mom. And one of the comparisons that you made was that, that after this accident, it was something that she talked about a lot. Um, but the difference was, you know, number one, how much she was talking about it, but almost, but also, um, you know, you said something like, you know, she has a reason to feel this way now because of the horrific things that she's going through. Um, and I thought that was very powerful, but it, but always, it always scares me to talk about, about things like that, things about suicide, especially when you've got a, a, a client who, who is struggling with that. And so I'm just wondering how you kind of wrestled with that issue, how you, if you talked to the clients about going there or how you handled it. No, you know, she was not in the courtroom. So I, you right. know, I'm always, I, I generally have my, when I give a closing argument or if I'm going to have any kind of uh, testimony that might be harmful, you know, or, or, or cause someone some depression or, or a setback, I won't have them in the courtroom. Yeah. And of course, Shannon was, was not in the courtroom. Um, and, uh, um, and the thing about the suicide, you know, it really was, she wrote a letter uh, and, and it was a really sweet letter about how much she loved her parents, but she didn't want to be a burden. And she knows she was a disappointment and, you know, she was struggling with her grades and, and, and she said, you know, I think you all be better off without me. And, you know, I may just kill myself. Well, then she crumpled it up and threw it in the wastebasket. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, she never even gave it to him, but, but mom being the mom, uh, concerned about her daughter. Yeah. Uh, found it, saw, saw that and looked at it and said, okay, well, you know, scared her to death. And she said, yeah. we're going to get some help. And yeah. so, uh, all three of them, you know, went and got some counseling, but the fact she didn't bring it up, they were trying to sort of, um, you know, I guess get a jury mad at mom, you know, make it look like she was dishonest. Mm. Right. <clears throat> you know, clearly wasn't, uh, she was, a she was wonderful. Uh, yeah. The other thing they made a big point out of was that uh, mom and dad had let her go into the garage and smoke cigarettes. And 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 she well, had done that a few times and they tried to make a really big deal out of that. And and I thought it was incredibly powerful. His mom, uh, she said, pointed out all the things that her daughter couldn't do all the things she'd been deprived of, all the things that she was never going to be able to do. And she said, you know, she's lost so much. And the one thing that gives her some pleasure and make her feel like she can do something on her own is to mm -hmm. go into the garage and be able to light her own cigarette. And she said, I wish she wasn't doing it, but I'm not going to take that away from her because it's the only thing she has. And it was really powerful. And it took a, you know, uh, a negative and turn it into a, a positive, actually. I mean, yeah. Well, and we, you know, we've alluded to it and Steve talked about it at the beginning, but a lot of the, you know, I think anybody who does this kind of work, you know, catastrophic injury, um, patients, you know, you're, you're used to certain aspects of her injury, or at least you've heard of them before, but there were some of these that, um, were new to me, especially the, the, that I think you did a very good job of, of explaining in the opening. Um, you know, there was a Steve mentioned, there was just the, the fact that especially in the beginning, they were, she would have to physically open her eyes and, and 
and hold her eyes, tape her eyes open. Um, but one of the things I thought was really powerful that you talked about that I think you could make the mistake of, of thinking it wasn't as, as big of a deal as some of the other um, impairments was that hyperphagia, was that issue where she couldn't remember what she'd eaten and she wasn't really getting those signals about being full. And so she'd be she'd be constantly eating or ready to eat again, not realizing she had had um, recently eaten. And it would cause all this strife in the family because they would try to take food away from her and she wouldn't realize that she had just eaten. And it, that I had never heard of that before, but it sounds really scary. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Both, both of those issues with the eyes and the, and the hyperphagia. Um, and she, she could not remember she had eaten and she didn't feel, you know, satiated or, or like she had eaten. So, so what they would do is, um, uh, you know, feed her. And then five minutes later, she was hungry again because she didn't remember she had eaten. And she thought they were trying to starve her to death. And I mean, she, you know, it was it was very, very uh, traumatizing to the parents, you know, to to have them feel that way. And um, uh, with the uh, with the eyes, I think both fourth cranial nerves were knocked out. And so she ended up eventually having surgery and they did some muscle uh, transfers and some things to where uh, she could actually uh, blink. Uh, but the problem was once they did that, her eyes wouldn't close all the way. So at night she had to wear goggles and put ointment and cream in her eyes. Um, I mean, devastating injury. Um, she had severe problems with dry eyes. Uh, and then um, um, she also had disinhibition syndrome where she right. she didn't realize, um, you know, it's, it's like the filter's gone on, right. on when to put the brakes on uh, and stop. Um, you know, uh, what you're saying or doing. So it was, uh, you know, uh, for the parents, it was just unbelievable. And, you know, it, it, people just can't imagine what, what goes on when somebody is in a coma for, you know, 52 days. Uh, and we have one really interesting, meaning my wife's an anesthesiologist. And so, um, the daughter was in Louisville, um, uh, uh, you know, in a facility for people, uh, you know, uh, in brain injury rehab. This was after she woke up after 52 days. She was staying up here. And <clears throat> the facility she was at was really bad. And mom got her moved to a better facility with a lot of lobbying, a lot of work. Well, then... Uh, they came in this place one night and a young resident uh, who wasn't being supervisor gave her the wrong medication. Oh, no. And I was sitting home. I got a phone call about 11 o'clock at night. And uh, mom said, you know, she was frantic. She said they'd given her this medication. And, and uh, I asked my wife about it. And she said they need to call an ambulance immediately. She's going to stop breathing in about, you know two or three minutes, five minutes. And sure enough, on the way to the hospital, she coded and uh, they had to, uh, um, you know, do CPR, uh, administer Narcan to reverse it. 
Um, but, you know, it was just a harrowing experience for mom. I mean, she was just so traumatized after going through everything she had been through, you know, for the last three months and then uh, to have that happen. Uh, so she never left her side again because she was there that night. She, she actually never left her side, but she was even more hypervigilant after that, uh, which I always tell everybody, you know, if you have a loved one in the hospital, make sure somebody's there 24 hours. Right. You, you know, you need to double check everything. No, absolutely. So one of the parts of the injuries she suffered, I mean, you, we mentioned that she had dementia, but you also described that uh, basically her, her uh, brain was uh, shrinking uh, and that she had uh, even, I think even from after the incident, her IQ had actually diminished even more uh, over time. That was just a function of the brain injury or what was happening to her brain? Yeah, I I think that was just atrophy atrophy from the damage itself. But we had a neuropsychologist, uh, I'm sorry, a neuropsychiatrist from North Carolina testify about that. And uh, a great expert. Uh, You know, it's so important to find good experts in these cases. And he was the doctor's doctor. He's the guy that went all over the country lecturing to other uh, people, uh, how to take care of brain injured people. So he had a lot of credibility and he said, you know, here's what we see with this. Uh, and it's, you know, it's early dementia and, uh, um, you know, there it's, it, it's not going to stay static. It's going to get worse and mm. explained all the reasons why. Yeah. And, and, you know, we haven't really gone through every single, I mean, cause it, this, uh, brain injury affected her just in so many different ways. I mean, it was you know, loss of her executive functioning. She was able to walk, but as you described, it was more of a waddle. She couldn't run anymore. Couldn't ride a bike, couldn't swim, couldn't do it. You know, the type of exercise and, and fun things that she liked to do before. And, um, and really just, uh, affected every aspect of her life. Um, Tyler, if you could talk a little bit about how you went about presenting damages to the jury. I mean, we other than the injuries, but how you uh, quantified that for the jury so that they could figure out what kind of value to put on it. Well, the um, the, the you know, the damages were uh, past medical expense, which um, um, I, I can't even remember what they were now. I want to say about four hundred ninety thousand yeah. dollars, maybe something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um and then her lost wages from her job in the past, you know, we just took the McDonald's wage, you know, we didn't want to overreach. Right. And although she could have, you know, maybe done other jobs, but, but we just took that, what she was working. And that was not a whole lot, uh, maybe uh, 10 or $11,000. And then uh, the big, the big number was the life care plan, uh, which to take care of her the rest of her life, we hired a life care planner to, to do a, uh, an analysis that was about 14 million and something and then pain and suffering and you know she had a i want to say 60.6 years of life remaining um by statistics you know that in kentucky we have some life expectancy tables that the courts have adopted so um uh, that's what most people use although you can use federal statistics and um but um so, so you know, quantifying what that is. So, I, I, one of the things is we used a big chart. I like to use rhetorical questions, and so I had a big chart, and I and the rhetorical question was, what happens when the money runs out? Right. You know. So, uh, how 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 are you, how are you gonna, um, you know, what's this family gonna do? Uh, she needs the entire amount. You know, she may only live thirty or forty years. 
she may live 80 years, but on average, she's going to live 60.6. So, you know, if you go with that number, um, she's going to need this money to care for her for the next 60.6 years. And then one of the things I like to point out is she doesn't get that. That's not going to her. That that money for that life care plan goes back to the hospitals and the doctors, and it's going to go back to them over time for the next 60.6 years. If everything works out as the life care plan says, it's for medical care, it's for supplies, it's for you know video cameras so the parents can watch her and keep an eye on her so she doesn't get up in the middle of the night and leave. It's all the things you know that she's going to need, aqua therapy and everything else. But that goes back to the medical community. She doesn't get to keep that. So what she gets to keep is what you award for pain and suffering. And then uh, I think they gave us about $13 million for that. Right. The one thing I did want to ask you about the life care plan, and I just noticed this in your closing, is there was something, some doctor in there that the defense made a big point of putting in the life care plan. And you in your closing admitted that it was a mistake. And um, and I was just wondering, first of all, what that was. And then I, I, I always think it's best just to be honest and straightforward with the jury. So if you made a mistake, it's a mistake. That's what it was. Yeah. There was there was somebody that was listed that she had seen in the past and our life care planner thought it was for some counseling. But it turned out that he was a different type of doctor and had, was not going to be doing counseling. And so, um, uh, yeah, we just owned up to it, said, hey, look, you know, it's, it's a, we that's a mistake. Uh, leave it out. Uh, yeah, you should. That's the right thing to do. Uh, um, uh, they're right about that. Um, and yeah, it, it, sometimes you just got to be straightforward. And, and yeah. 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 So, you know, um, one thing that, uh, I, we hadn't asked is, so this was in Warren County. Um, I, my understanding is that's a fairly small County. What kind of venue is that? And, um, and then the second part of that question is, did you get a chance to talk to the jury afterwards? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, a couple of interesting things. Uh, it, it, Warren County is not a, a, a really small town. It's a rural county, but it's where Western Kentucky University is. So they have a, a, a pretty good population and a, a fairly sophisticated population. And, um, you know, Kentucky's not known for uh, necessarily giving out large verdicts. It's, it's, you know, especially out, you know, if you get outside of Louisville, Kentucky, it's a it's more rural and more much more conservative. And I think they were sort of kind of betting on that a little bit uh, as part of the trial. But uh, I, I did talk to the jurors afterwards. Um, um, and one of the jurors said, yeah, we got back there and we thought she deserved all of it because I think I was asking for about thirty three million dollars, maybe. But he said, we really thought if we give the whole thing that, you know, on appeal, they may think we just rubber stamped something and didn't pay attention. So we, we knocked some of it off. Oh <laughs> That's <great>. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um. Well, that's really good. And, and one other thing I wanted to ask you about their defense of the case, which was uh, this idea that they were trying to paint themselves as a public service vehicle and almost that the, because they're a public service vehicle that that they can do what they want. How did they play that and how, how did uh, how did that go over at trial? You know, I, I, I don't remember um, a whole lot about that issue other than that there was a statute that sort of exempted public service vehicles from the 
duties of a regular motorist uh, in that they can they have more rights to stop um, uh, and more rights to uh, impede traffic, so to speak. So so they played that up pretty well that it's a public service vehicle. Um, but, um, you know, I really think, um, you know, I already know this was, well, so what, you know, you don't, you don't get to do dangerous things, uh, right. for no reason. And, um, you know, I really think what sort of made the case was, was these witnesses who, yeah. who said, you know, look, we all told them, you know, we all thought this was dangerous and called and told them it's dangerous. You know, we, we, uh, uh, once we, once we were able to establish that they had that much notice, um, and in close calls, you know, they were, they were saying she should have been able to stop a hundred feet away. Well, the, you know, the one lady said, I, I stopped about five feet. I had this giant grill staring me in my front windshield and I was shaking, I was mm-hmm. so scared, you know, and she called and didn't get a hold of them. And she was so upset. She called back again, you know, and then the other guy said, but yeah, I don't know about stopping a hundred feet away, but I was going to hit it if I hadn't gone around it. Uh, he said, that's, you know, yeah. So, well, and it's sort of it's sort of this, you know, idea of they're, they're playing Russian roulette. I mean, um, you know, nine out of 10 people might miss it. But what about that 10th person? Yeah. Well, and you're expecting people to be perfect in, that, yeah. you know, uh, come over. I mean, they had her, you know, perceiving it as soon as they saw the top of the truck. You mm-hmm. know, well, maybe she didn't see it right then, you know. Uh, um, and then, you know, trying to figure out, is it, you know, one of the things we pointed out is just because you see it. Uh, you know, you're saying she should have slammed on her brakes. Well, she doesn't know if it's moving, you know, right. if it's coming at her. Um, you know, she sees it rising as she's coming over the hill. Um, if she slams on her brakes and stops in that lane and it doesn't move, it's going to cream her. So, you know, she's got a lot to think about. And uh, I think the jury understood that. Yeah. yeah. They um, So the, you, you mentioned earlier that they had tried to appeal it and you, you had cross appealed. It sounds like it, maybe it got resolved when it was on appeal. Um, what were, what were their, uh, what were they saying was error in the case? Um, if you remember, you know, there was one issue and I can't remember, um, uh, if it was, um, uh, you know, I, it, there, there was an issue that, that yeah. and it wasn't a good issue at all. I mean, yeah. I wasn't terribly worried about it, but it seems like the judge had excluded some evidence maybe. Um, um, uh, or it might've been about the statute, whether this, you know, uh, they should have got a different instruction on their duty with respect to being a public service. Because there, there was some, yeah, I've never had a trial where they couldn't find some issue. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> find something to try to put a little bit of fear into you. So you're yeah. more the verdict a little bit. <laughs> of course. Well, I, I, I was, looking at some press about the case back when it happened. And, and one of the, the quotes from, from one of the defense lawyers was about the verdict was that he was just really worried about what, what, <laughs> what this verdict, the did you see this, Steve, the, yeah, the message yeah. it would send to other businesses yeah, that uh, it's going to hurt business in, that want to do business in Kentucky. And I just was like, really dude, like, yeah. Yeah, Come maybe, on, maybe man. Maybe it'll tell them not to park over the... <laughs> right, right, yeah. The we, 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 we got no problem with business. Just do it in a safe way. That's all we're asking. Yeah, I mean, it's also, it's like it ruined a 17-year-old's life. Yeah, And exactly. you're immediately going to, you're worried this the message this will send to people who might want to do business in Kentucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, I couldn't let that go without saying... No, no. 
And Tyler, I'm interested to know. So did the case go through appeal and I assume it got upheld or did you? No, get a result? you know, what, what it is, is they, there was about 11 million in insurance coverage. And so uh, I thought we might get more than that. And I didn't think they were going to pay it. So we made a demand for it and um, uh, and they didn't pay it. And uh, it was interesting. The lawyer trying the case had the first million layer of coverage. There was another lawyer. Uh, who had the excess $10 million policy. And so my position was, uh, you know, hey, if you'll tell your company to tell them to pay it under Kentucky law, the liability for an excess verdict shifts from the business to the insurance company that could have got them out of the case, but decided to take their chances. So we made a demand for the 11. They didn't pay it. That gave us unlimited coverage. So when we got the verdict, you know, uh, we said, well, you guys are on the hook for it. And, And they were, and they knew it. So they came in, uh, we had a, while it was on appeal, we had a, um, a day-long mediation and, and resolved the case, um, you know, very favorable. Good, good. No, that, that, that's fantastic. I, I, did they, uh, without uh, disclosing anything as confidential, did they make anything that would have been considered a reasonable offer before trial? Um, yes, um, it was, it's interesting. We, we got fairly close. Um, I, I, I think their last offer was maybe five and a half, uh, and, um, and I turned it down, uh, which, yeah. um, um, you know, it was a little nerve wracking. I mean, they, they haven't had any large verdicts down there and that sort of thing. We had a trial a few years before with the federal government on, it was in the, uh, federal tort claims act case. Mm-hmm. And, um, I had been offered, you know, like $400,000 in a very bad brain damage case. So, we uh, show up at trial and they come in and offer four million. And then the next day it's five million. And then it was six million. And we, you know, we, we said, no, I think we were wanting more. Maybe 10 was our demand. And finally they came back and said, um, if you will, we got two demand, two, two offers for you. We'll do six cash um, or we'll pay you seven four cash and three million in a reversionary trust that gets set up. And then, you know, whatever's left over out of that goes back to the government client doesn't get to keep it. Um, and, and I thought it was, was, you know, pretty underhanded. It's basically, but they said, but you yeah. get to figure your fee on 7 million, you know, right. so it's like, we know this isn't better for the client, but you're, you know, but you'll right. do this because you get to, right. you know, so I went to the client and said, I, I want your permission to never, speak to him again. <laughs> so <laughs> said, you have it. So I went back and said, I've got my poor class permission to never speak to you again about settlement and, and, and we're done. And so, you know, we, we got uh, 20.8 in that trial. And so a few years later, you know, when they put five and a half uh, on the table, it, it, you know, it, it was easier to turn down because I'd mm-hmm. had that prior experience of having it work out. Um, uh, I will tell you in that other trial, I had an insurance adjuster walk up to me who represented a different carrier. And he said, I heard you turned down seven. And and I, this was during a break of the trial. And I said, yeah. He said, well, as far as I'm concerned, you've committed legal malpractice. No, oh, geez. Right, right in the courtroom. So, you know, I, I got that to think about for the next two weeks. But it turned out well. So when I was down there on that case, uh, you know, I, I was a little more comf- comfortable. Mm-hmm. Even though it was kind of an all or nothing, if the jury bought, hey, she should have stopped. Um, she had, you know, plenty of time to stop, which was the defense. Then, um, um, you know, it, that 
we would have gotten zero. But that's the beauty of doing focus groups. You know, right. I, right. I, I, I was comfortable and confident that uh, we were going to get a verdict after presenting it the second time. That goes back to the question I asked earlier that I, w- I wasn't sure I understood. If, if they had found your client any percentage at fault, is it, is it a contributory negligence or is it is it just a, uh, a percentage set off? It's a percent. It's comparative negligence. OK, OK. So, All right. Yeah, I'm sorry. We have comparative, pure comparative. So, OK, if okay. they find her 10 percent at fault, she gets to collect 90 percent of the award, you know. Or, or, I mean, the reverse of that is if they find her 80% at fault, she still gets 20%. Is that right? Yeah, she's going to get 20% and not not get the other 80%. Right. Okay. And then the other thing that I'm sure helps you, I don't know if you still have it, but back in 2002, I'm sure it was great, was... um, when you're negotiating a case, your uh, the interest on your judgments is twelve percent, which is uh, that's a pretty healthy percentage. Yes, the, our, our legislature changed that uh, a few years ago, unfortunately, because it did help get cases resolved. It got yeah. rid of a lot of frivolous appeals. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they did the same thing to us here in Georgia. We used to have twelve percent years ago, and uh, that went away a long time ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was you know, a lot of times we were like, go ahead and appeal. You're right. appeal. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> well, uh, well, Tyler, this has just been a great uh, conversation. And thank you so much for telling us about the uh, the Houchin versus uh, Republic Services of Kentucky doing business as Monarch Environmental and Jackie Jones uh, verdict that resulted in a $27,335,667.87 verdict. And I just wanted to ask you, Tyler, is there anything else that um, we haven't had a chance to tell our listeners about that you want to make sure they know about the uh, about that case? No, I think we've, uh, you know, we've kind of hit the high points and uh, uh, glad to spend time with you. Be sure to call me if you get up to Louisville. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a great city and um, I look forward to being up there. Uh, in a few weeks. So, um, but uh, Tyler, thank you so much for your time. And, um, and just wanted to uh, just, we really appreciate you coming on. All right. All right. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, 
our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.